Right, well, again, good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, you guys are stuck with me for the second week in a row. When Evan's gone, Tim's away this week as well. You got me next week as well, so fair warning if you want to be sick. Uh, but you have me today. Uh, so last week I started uh, with the first half, really the origin of Samson's life. Today we're going to kind of finish his story. But before we get to that, uh, you know, growing up, um, I have these memories waking up just about every morning, walking downstairs um, to find my mom at our kitchen counter with her Bible open. She was really faithful. And with that, church obviously was important. And so every Sunday we went to church with few exceptions. And so, so every Sunday uh, at the church that I grew up at, uh, there was Sunday school uh, in between the two services. And so what that meant for us in a family with a mom who church was really important um, to her, um, it was just a normal part of life. And so every Sunday I went to service and I went to Sunday school after in the summer I did VBS in the winter we had a kids theater I was a part of that too and uh and when I was old enough, I served in the same VBS. And when I was in junior high, I went to our youth group. And on top of that all, we actually lived like right down the street from this church. And so naturally, um, it just was normal for us to spend a lot of time there. In fact, uh, one year, my bus stop was like right in, in front of uh, the doors to that church. Um, and so for most of my life, as a result, I would have told you that I was a Christian because I did all of these Christian things. But it wasn't until sometime around seventh or eighth grade that I started to realize that even though I knew who Jesus was, who God was, I don't think I really knew him. And so um, I began to realize that even if I believed he was God, I don't think he was mine. And so after some time with the investment of people like my youth pastor, God finally wooed me to himself and I decided that I wanted to dedicate my life to him, that I needed him and that I couldn't do this whole life thing without him. And so I kind of entered high school with this new mission and drive to know God and to actually follow him. And really being a Christian entering into high school is probably the perfect time to choose to live that way, but it's also a really difficult time at 14 to determine to follow Christ. There are and there were so many temptations and tough choices that our kids and uh, we had to make at that age. And, and around 13 and 14, we really start to realize that we're, we're only a few years away from adulthood, and we have to start deciding what kind of man or woman we want to be. And at the same time, there's still so much that we want to experience and try for ourselves. And, and there's so much about the world that we start to recognize and, and start to think we understand, yet at the same time at that age, we often lack the wisdom and experience needed to really judge things well, despite what we believe at the time. And so listen, if you're here this morning, if you're in this room today or watching at home and you're around that age, can you just hear me for a moment? I mean, you are so smart and probably really perceptive. But one of the smartest things that you can do is seek wisdom. Like there's wisdom in many counselors. So don't assume you know more than you do. Assume actually that those older than you have experienced some things and have some learned some things. And, and so see if you can absorb as many lessons as you can so that you don't have to make the same mistakes 
they did. And in fact, you can actually learn those things far earlier than they did. And first and foremost, know that there's no better source of that wisdom or knowledge than from the one who designed and created it all. He knows far better than anyone else how this world works and how to work it. So really, my advice that I'm giving you is this. Don't always trust that you know best. Instead, assume you don't, and then go find sound teachers to show you what you're missing. And listen, adults in the room, I still think this is probably good for us to hear too. Because whether you're willing to admit it or not, we historically are really bad at judging things. And it constantly gets us in trouble, personally and socially. Look at the world around you. And so last week we looked at the origin of Samson, this man who from his birth was dedicated to the Lord and the Lord was dedicated to him. He had so much potential. But in his early life, the first story we hear is him deciding that he knows better. But we also saw that that didn't work out so well. So listen, if you're here this morning, it doesn't matter if you're 14 or 40, you, really we, are so much more foolish than we often realize. And this morning, as we look at Judges chapter 15 and 16 and the rest of Samson's life, I want us to see that though it's very exaggerated, his life's example, Samson's life serves as a very clear and true representation of how foolish we can often be, despite the foundations that might have been given to us. And how choosing our judgment over God's rarely, if ever, goes well. Instead, I think it just makes us blind. Yet at the same time, I hope that we'll be reminded that God will be there for you whenever it is that you realize that your eyes have been lying to you. When you realize that you need him to be the one whose perspective you use to see and judge the world. And I want you to see this morning that regardless of how close you followed God's will or however far you've strayed, he will be right there when you call. This morning I want us to see how God was, God's ways are best, that seeing the world through his eyes leads us to truth and that it's never too late to trust him. And so with that, we're going to jump into the story beginning in chapter 15 and we'll see how this gets us there. Okay, so last week, our story left off with Samson marrying somebody. I'll give you guys a quick summary if you weren't here. Last week, our story left off with Samson marrying somebody he shouldn't have married, making a bet he should have never made, losing that bet after being betrayed by his new spouse, and in his anger, killing 30 men, stealing their possessions to pay off the debt he shouldn't have made in the first place. And after that, he leaves his wife, and then... His wife's father then marries her off to his best man. And so at this point in the story, you can probably start to hear the subtle chants of, Jerry, Jerry. But this is our context, this like crazy, just like devolving story of chaos. And then it picks up in chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. 
But is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regards to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson goes to reconcile with his wife only to find that she's now married to his best man. Now, mind you, she's still married to Samson. The text continues to call her his wife and her father, his father-in-law. And then to make this family connection even more twisted, her father tries to trade his older daughter for his younger, but Samson wants none of it. And he feels betrayed. Can you hear his cries now? And at that point, at this point in, in our story, it's not just this betrayal by his new family that he feels, and it's not just them who he wants retaliation or, or revenge for, but he feels that really his vengeance needs to be felt by all the Philistines. And so he responds in the only way that you do in such a situation. The only way that makes sense, you capture 300 foxes, you tie torches to their tails, and you set them free in your enemy's fields during harvest in June. And and so he burns all of their grains. Fair's fair. But somehow the Philistines don't see it that way. And so they respond to Samson's fires with one of their own as they capture and burn his wife and her father. And now Samson really does have reason to call the Philistines his enemies because, listen, even if you're really mad at your family, I doubt you'd think this is okay. And I'd be concerned if you did, and we probably need to talk. But in all seriousness, if you can stop with me for a moment and consider the gravity of this story so far, whether it was right or not for Samson to marry into this family, Samson was a person with expectations of what this new marriage and family would bring him. But immediately he has his heart broken and he experiences betrayal and he experiences loss, wouldn't you? And then in his anger and his rage, he lashes out with these extreme measures. And in, in this wake of his rage, he cares not about the lives of these animals. He couldn't care less about the consequences of his actions. And he seeks only to make others feel the way he feels. And so he does what seems right in his own eyes. And he seeks vengeance and wrath on others. And in the process, that feeling of loss and anger leads not just to the loss of his new wife, but to her death. And more, despite all of this, which started because of his bad judgment, he's incapable of seeing his part in the consequences. And he escalates this dispute even further by killing more people. And after that, he goes back home and settles in Judah as if the conflict's now over. So I just pause with me here for a moment and take this in. Samson's disregarded God's explicit warnings not to get in bed with these people. And then he begins to gamble with them. And then after being surprised they cheated, he attacks them. And then he's appalled that they respond with their own violence. So he burns their property and livelihood. And then he's, he's surprised and appalled again that they took his family. And so again, he goes for blood. Now I hope this story is far more extreme than yours. But how familiar does this pattern sound? In our own lives, in our personal conflicts, how often have you responded with retaliation or retribution? How often have you felt justified? 
but how often were we really? So if I had to bet, I'd put my money on the reality that we weren't. Or at the very least, you probably took it too far. If I had to guess, at some point you or someone else took things too far to the point where the other person just backed off, and in that moment you probably believed that it was over and you won. But don't we all know that in these kinds of conflicts you never really win, and the consequences always come somewhere? Can anyone relate to this pattern? You know, when I, when I was 15, uh, my dad left. And, and before that, there was a lot of strife in my house. There was a lot of anger, and I saw this pattern time and time again, where someone would feel wronged and would do their part to make sure the offended parties face the consequences. And so I learned this pattern from a really young age. And so at 15, despite my new faith, I think you can imagine that I was fairly angry. And I was pretty good at perpetuating the same pattern myself. And so for me, it's not that on the outside I always seemed angry, it's just that it didn't take much to get me there. And if you did, you would know, and likely so would those around me. And so as I look back, I don't see a lot of victories there. I don't think I gained much through any of those conflicts. I thought I won, but instead now I could give you a laundry list of regrets and I could write down names of real people that I lost relationship with or I hurt because of my mistakes and my anger. But like Samson, I lived as if I was untouchable and like the world owed me something, not realizing that a lot of those bruises life gave me were actually self-inflicted and probably well-deserved. And so last week, I told you that when we judge what's good and evil based upon what we see instead of what God says, it never goes well. Since the garden, we've proven to be really bad judges of right and wrong. And so this week, I want us to wrestle with the reality of that statement on a really personal level. I want us to reflect back on our own lives to see how time and time again we look at ourselves as the arbiter of justice, not realizing how selfish our perspectives are and how devastating the results can be. I want us to consider how much hurt we can cause even without realizing it when we think that we know what's best for us and what kind of justice others deserve. Samson believed he was the arbiter of justice and thought that he could quit when he was satisfied but all that did was lead him deeper into anger and like the fires that he set, that rage only spread. And so this morning, it's my hope, man, don't let that story be yours. And if it is or if it has been so far, know that there's still hope for you. The story's not over, your story's not over, and I hope this morning that I can show you the way out. But in the meantime, let's see what happens next for Samson, beginning in verse 9. It says, then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this thing that you have done to us? And he says to them, listen, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, 
We will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So look at this. Samson's actions have led his people, the people he's supposed to lead, Judah, to being raided by the Philistines who say that they are there to do to him what he has done to them. And so Judah comes to Samson saying, what have you done to us? And he replies saying, as they did to me, I've done to them. And so his answer is the same as the Philistines. He is the same. Samson, instead of being the defender of his people, is now the offender. His vengeance has harmed his people. And what's worse, he doesn't seem to notice, care, or acknowledge how his actions have affected others. He's blinded by his own selfish and self-righteous pursuits. Has that ever been you? When we take justice into our own hands, it often results in more strife, not less. And so from here, Samson allows himself to be captured, but again, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he's able to kill a thousand men as easily as he tore apart that lion. And after his workout, we find him calling out to God for the first time in his narrative. And so that's probably important. So I want to look at what he says this first time he calls out to God in verse 18. It says, and he was thirsty and he called out to the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open a hollow place at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank it, his spirit returned and he was revived. Therefore, the name of this place was En-Hakor. It's at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So Samson's captured, but God frees him and gives him victory, faithful to the faithless. And immediately after, Samson calls upon God to get him a drink. How arrogant, how self-absorbed, still so blind. Have you ever met someone like this? So self-entitled or unaware that even when helped by others, they don't seem to recognize the blessing or the grace and instead they become more demanding, more prideful. This is the first time we see Samson even acknowledge God and he complains just like Israel did in the desert right after God freed them from the bondage of their own. It's the same ungratefulness. It's the same story. And listen, this is an intentional detail. Samson, like the rest of God's people, have the same propensity to forget the works that he's done for them and to mistrust that he's there for them despite his continued work on their behalf. And listen, we are no different. We do this too. And I think ultimately that's the point. That Samson and Israel and really all people continually and perpetually fall into the same trap of unbelief and entitled expectations and skewed perspectives of justice. Our sin makes us blind to what's truly good. And every time we judge based upon what we see instead of what God has said, it never goes well, yet that's what we do. And so Samson did that for 20 years. And during that time, all his judgment did was bring the Philistines um, into family ties with his people instead of freeing him from them. And he only escalates their anger and wrath against God's people so that Israel suffered more because of Samson's selfish and twisted sense of justice. 
And again, I think that's our story. When we trust ourselves to know what's right, we always choose wrong. And then we get to chapter 16 and we see Samson again be led astray by his eyes and he finds a prostitute and he sleeps with her. Don't do that. The Philistines try to capture him again and again God grants him strength to rip the city gates out of the ground and he carries them 20 miles to Hebron just to show he could. And after this, he sees yet another Philistine woman named Delilah, and he chooses to fall for her. And just like his wife, again, this woman presses him for information to give to his enemies. And Delilah, again, betrays him time and time again, attempting to find the source of his strength. And again, Samson gambles with his enemies, giving hints and false answers to this puzzle until he, uh, until he finally reveals to this woman the truth, telling her all of his heart, verse 17. And so up until this point, he had told Delilah three lies to where his strength may have come from. And each time he woke up to an ambush. You know, if you tell only one person a big secret and that night a bunch of people know, (laughs) she's probably not trustworthy. And if you tell them another secret on the next night and that night a bunch of people know, she probably doesn't have your back. And if on the third night you tell her your whole heart and a bunch of people know, she probably doesn't love you back. She probably doesn't care for you. So three times Samson tells Delilah the the supposed secrets of his strength and each time he wakes up tied up or strapped down, surrounded by his enemies. Delilah is always right there, yet still he's smitten by this woman and he finally tells her the truth. And so he tells her of his Nazarite vow and how he's never cut his hair. Despite being involved with women he should have never been involved with, despite his time in that vineyard, despite making himself unclean by touching corpses or eating unclean foods, at least he never cut his hair. Is that ever the way you treat your faith? I know your decrees and your commands, but I'm going to completely disregard them over here, but at least I'll listen here. God, I know you tell me to be a good steward and to love my family, to provide for them, to take care of the widow and the orphan, to be generous and all that. Uh, I'm going to do all of it except the generous part. I don't want to do that. God, I know that marriage is supposed to be this really unique and special relationship that reflects your commitment and love for your people and something about the nature of who you are, but actually, I'm going to do whatever I want with my body, but you know what? I'll be really generous. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, even my enemies, but I'm only going to show that kind of love and commitment and kindness to the people that I like. But I'll read my Bible and I'll pray every day. Listen, where do you gamble with God? Where do you trade obedience for sacrifice? Where have you drawn a line of submission that you refuse to cross? Each time we fall into this trap, we blind ourselves to the dangers and the blessings that God has has warned us of or prepared for us. And so Samson, by verse 21, we see that this is a losing gamble for him. And he loses the very eyes that he's trusted for his whole life. 
The Philistines capture him after cutting off his hair. And they place him in shackles and they gouge out his eyes and they bind him to a mill in a prison so that he can go in circles and literally grind for the rest of his days. That's what you do at a mill. Does everybody know what a mill was? All right. You have this big stone circle with like a trench in the middle with this huge stone with some kind of like bar attached to it. And you typically strap an animal to it and you put the grains in the mill and the animal just goes in circles moving this big stone as it grinds that into flour. And so now the blind Samson, that's where he is. And God allows him to follow his own path even though time and time again, we see where it leads. Yet God was faithful despite it. And in verse 22, we see the sign of God's presence and faithfulness to Samson as it notes that his hair begins to grow back. And then in verse 23, we find the Lord of the Philistines and all their leaders gathered together to sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate believing that their God had victory over Samson and his and they bring Samson out to mock him and entertain them. And so in these shackles between these two pillars, they bind Samson, and the blind Samson cries out to the Lord for the, for the second time in our story, but with a demeanor much different than the time before. And so now instead of with entitlement, with humility, recognizing finally that God's uh, hand has always been there and a part of his life. And so Samson doesn't make demands of God this time, but he appeals to him instead. And he asked God to give him strength for one more feat, not to free him from his bondage, but to allow him to die with the Philistines as a final act of vengeance against his enemies. And then with all the strength that God would grant him, he destroys the pillars of this temple, leveling it to the ground and killing more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life. And so all the leaders of the Philistines die in this one act, paving the way for Israel's freedom as God promised before Samson was even born. Last week we saw that Samson was placed thematically in this category of biblical characters who were all destined to be tools for salvation. But unlike the others, Samson lived his entire life with a complete disregard for the call and mission that God had planned for him. Samson instead lived for himself, trusting what he determined right and wrong, good and evil. And he continually gambled with the gifts that God gave him, regularly losing as a result. And despite the outcomes, and, and he was blind to the accountability, always seeking his own definition of justice, never aware of how much harm he left in his wake. His actions made his family unclean, led to the death of his wife, left people to starve, allowed Judah to be ransacked, and led him to the loss of his eyes and in bondage as a slave, doing the work of a donkey. Samson's eyes led him down a path of destruction to an endless circle and grind. Yet at his lowest point, and despite his literal blindness, he finally was able to see God for who he was and the reality that God was always there, even when Samson strayed so far. And when Samson cried out for God to be faithful and to remember him, he did, because God always makes good on his promises. So Samson's story was never about what kind of hero he would be. It's the story of what kind of people we are, but also what kind of God we have and what kind of savior we need. Despite the exaggerated details of Samson's life, he serves as an accurate illustration of who all of us tend to be, constantly living by our eyes and what we see and how destructive our pursuits can be. 
Before Samson was even conceived, God promised that he would use this man to begin to rescue his people. And despite a lifetime of disobedience, God held up his end of the bargain in miraculous and radical ways. Despite Samson's lifelong disobedience, when he cried out to God, God answered and was faithful because he always is. And so like all the judges in this book, Samson reveals our desperate need for a savior greater than any one of us could ever be. But he also reminds us that God always turns out to be the savior we need. This morning, would you consider how closely your life resembles Samson's in the patterns that play out? Are you constantly finding yourself in situations where your eyes lead you astray, escalating conflicts in a pursuit to satisfy your own sense of judgment? Do you gamble with the commands of God? Do you disregard them or obey? Do you find yourself feeling like you're blindly going in circles in a continual grind, shackled to the consequences of your own making? Listen, if that's you this morning, it should be clear that like Samson, you're not the hero in your story. You're not that great, but God is, and he's faithful, and he's working, even when you don't see it. He's right there, waiting for you to cry out to him, and if you do, he will show up in radical ways, because he always does. That's who he is. He's the savior we need, and the good news is he promises to be that for all who believe. And the better news is that he always makes good on his promises, even if that means working with and through people as broken as Samson, you, or I. Samson and we make terrible judges of what's good or bad, but if we would trust and obey God who has spoken and modeled things for us, it won't lead us to shackles in another God's temple, but it will lead us to a feast and a family in God's. Would you trust in that promise this morning? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are to us. Uh, thank you so much for stories like Samson's uh, that we time and time again make the same mistakes that Samson did, maybe not as extreme, but always the same pattern. We always think that our sense of judgment is right. We always think that our sense of judgment is good. Justice is good and we pursue it, Lord. Would we pursue yours instead? Would we trust you with those things? Would we trust the model that you gave us? Would we turn the other cheek when necessary? Would we turn to you always? Lord, would our story from this point this morning for the rest of this week and for the rest of our lives look more and more like yours instead of like his? We ask these things in your name. Amen.